0: all right good morning and thanks for joining us and uh joining me here at wilton i have john and joe and uh joining us on zoom this morning we have mark keith and matt and uh, our mission today is to look at the third noble truth and uh After this, that will leave us with the fourth noble truth, which I'm anticipating will probably break into thirds. So, uh, the fourth noble truth, of course, being the Eightfold Path. So, we'll break it into the the wisdom, the meditation, and the virtue. Uh, And that would uh, bring us. To the conclusion of of this uh, uh, study of the Sadi Patana Sutra, uh, in September or October, <laughs> one or the other. <laughs> but uh, but our uh, our focus today is is on the third noble truth. And uh, my two main sources for this as I prepare for these are Steve Hagen's Buddhism, Plain and Simple, and uh, which Steve Hagen is a uh, Dharma heir of Katagiri. So he's in firmly in the Soto Zen uh, lineage. And then uh, the other uh, text I've been using is the Buddha's Ancient Path by Piyadasi uh, Tara, So you can have a Soto Zen uh, approach to kind of anchor and also pull in the Theravada. And Steve Hagen begins with the very simple observation the way most uh, uh, commentaries on the third noble truth express it is uh, is in its simplest sense. I mean, the third noble truth is really just taking the second noble truth about the cause, the arising of dukkha and making the observation that whatever is subject to arising is also subject to ceasing. It's kind of the, the nature of the thing. So it's a natural, continuation of the understanding of the second noble truth. Uh, But before we we go further with that, there were two uh, kind of short sidebars I wanted to take with this. The first one is to make the connection to what we've been looking at on Thursday nights, the Heart Sutra. Uh, to know this, know that. <laughs> no eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. Uh, and and relate that to cessation, which is the third noble truth. cessation, negation. So there's there's a commonality there. And cessation, of course, the third noble truth, is, and we'll be getting into this in a little more detail shortly. I mean, this is what we refer to as nirvana in Buddhism. Nirvana is extinction, cessation. And that is emptiness. Know this,
1: know that, and so on.
0: But we also talked, to, especially this past uh. Thursday about the gate, gate, para gate, gone, gone beyond. So no clearly is is a term as all terms are that's rooted in in our dualistic view of things. If you have no, you have yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's inevitable. That's what where no uh, derives its meaning from. So this is going beyond. This is why prajnaparamita, wisdom beyond wisdom, is going beyond no. Beyond arising and cessation. So the emptiness of the four noble truths. In the Heart Sutra, it's it's talked about no suffering, no origination, which is arising, no stopping, which is cessation. We're going beyond that. And the last thing to kind of tie that whole thing together in terms of Buddhist teaching and terminology is to look at the term often used to describe or refer to the Buddha, Tathagata. Tathagata means thus come one, but it also can mean thus gone one. (laughs) Thus come, thus gone. And thus, thusness is suchness in emptiness. So that's our Buddha nature. That's why it's used as as uh, a term for the Buddha, the Tathagata, thus come, and thus gone. That goes beyond both arising and cessation. So that's and and uh, there's a Zen uh, story, and I think Hui Neng is the teacher involved in this, but I'm not absolutely certain. I didn't have a chance to uh, to uh, uh, to verify this, uh, but it doesn't really matter. It's a it's a well-known t- teaching story about. Uh, uh, Who is it that thus comes? Who is it that thus comes? And and I want to relate that to Steve Hagen's statement here, that the third truth states whatever is subject to arising is also subject to ceasing. What is it? Who is it? Whatever is subject to arising. There is no. <laughs> whatever. We no talk about. Yeah, exactly. No one, no thing. Nothingness, no bodiness. So whatever. Is just kind of this placeholder term. Don't take we get hooked by it. <laughs> as soon as we hear whatever, uh, we've we've created something that's arising and then ceasing. But to go beyond is to see that that's our mind. We we create that. But the reality is there's nothing arising, there's nothing ceasing. That's Tatagata the suchness, which is reality. It's
1: suchness, thusness.
0: So that's kind of the, uh, the Mahayana backdrop here to the second and, and third uh, of, of the uh, Noble Truths. But it's it's pointing to the same uh, realization about dukkha and our release from it. So the first bodhisattva vow, beings are numberless. I vow to save them, free them, liberate them.
1: Even though,
0: as as the uh, the seeming paradox of Mahayana expresses it, uh, there are no beings to save. (laughs) But yet we take that vow, practicing in suchness, recognizing there are no beings to save. But the world is in great need of liberation. That's real clear. Every time we we uh, awaken and go online or open up the the day's newspaper,
1: so the cessation of dukkha is nirvana and.
0: The next point of of uh, Steve Hagen is, is a, an important one. He says the Buddha referred to Nirvana as unborn, ungrown and unconditioned, unborn. That it isn't arising. It's not part of that duality of arising and and ceasing. We we go beyond. And there was a uh, uh, very uh, prominent Zen master in 17th century Japan, uh, Banke, whose core teaching was simply the teaching of the unborn. And uh, he was very impactful with that. And I didn't bring that book with me to to, to show you, but there is uh, a text uh, out there uh, with the teachings of Banke. And maybe uh, at some point down the road, I'll uh, I'll pull that off the shelf and we can dig into him a little bit more. But the power, the powerful teaching of of seeing nirvana as the realization of the unborn nature of ultimate reality. It's just another way of looking at uh, the thus come one. Who is it that thus comes right now, right here? And another way of looking at this, the unborn, the ungrown and unconditioned is that uh, if it wasn't for those, that uh, aspect of reality, then there'd be no escape for the born, the grown and the conditioned, that would be it. But the reality, which encompasses all of it, this is uh, the, uh, the thing about dualism, which Taoism, uh, I think it's one of the uh, things that Zen was, was heavily impacted by Taoism with is, uh, is the fact that, that reality is always inclusive of, of, of the entirety, including both sides of all dualities. As soon as we stipulate good, we've also created bad and so on, right, wrong, yes, no, arising
1: cessation. So
0: once we've created the born, the grown and the condition, then we've created its release. As soon as we've created self, created no self. It's part of part of that vast web of reality. And all dualities have that same feature. And going beyond just duality to the broader sense of interdependence, he says there's nothing you can find, nothing you can even imagine that doesn't originate, develop, or exist in relation to other things. So our practice with the way we relate to things in the world as separate things kind of is already putting us on the path to awaken as we uh, become contemplatives and look more deeply into them. We see the truth of this interdependence and that they don't exist in their own right. And the same is true of ourselves.
1: So our delusion
0: is not a hindrance to our awakening. It's kind of key. It's our starting point. And we base our practice upon it and study it. To study Zen is to study the self. To study the self is to study the deluded self because that is the self. And he goes on to say that uh, the contents of our minds are in constant motion as are the contents of our bodies. This, This impermanence, nothing fixed, the nature of reality. And so this third noble truth, of cessation of nirvana is seeing thoroughly and completely parasam, <laughs> thoroughly and completely seeing that
1: this is so, this constant motion. And this is
0: seeing our situation as it is not a fabrication of it or kind of shortcut. It's like our our, our algorithm that we use as a shortcut to function more efficiently in life. We create all these things
1: and we think they're
0: Absolutely real, but we're we're kind of like a Google, each one of us (laughs) working from these algorithms that serve a purpose just like Google's do. They can do wonderful things, but they can also snare us, cause problems when they become misused.
1: And that's our problem.
0: This is why we study something like the Satipatthana Sutra because we don't generally pay attention to what we see, what we're experiencing. We don't really take the time the bother to look deeply into it because we're always racing ahead because there is so much to do. We all are in, find ourselves caught up in that. So this act of stopping, one of the most important things we can do for ourselves and for all beings, so that we can see our situation for what it is, and then help others to do
1: likewise.
0: Otherwise, you know, we're kind of caught up in in uh, a matrix like reality where we're running the algorithm and we're caught up in that. And that's that's reality. For because we think of ourselves as individuals or persons, separate entities persisting through time, a separate entity and a clearly
1: definable entity,
0: which is what we need in order to have change. What changes? (laughs) Who is it that thus changes? We need that. But this teaching of suchness saying, okay, that's fine if it's helpful to us, but don't get trapped by it. There is no such thing because it's constantly changing. So constant that our use of the word change misses it. because there is nothing that's changing.
1: It's the natural state of things, there aren't These existing things that are changing. We
0: fabricate those existing things as algorithms to help us function. So they serve a purpose. Shouldn't get rid of them, but we need to see them
1: for what they really are. Kind of pull back
0: the curtain and see the programming that's going on and the purpose it serves to see reality as it is. is what we call a person, the Buddha referred to as a stream. Of course, the same is true for all things, let alone just a person. But for us, working, starting from the the sense of self, as Dogen knew and and taught, uh, that's a good place to to focus. It's that particular entity that's of, of such special interest to us to see it as a stream, as a non-entity. No self, an-atman. So from this understanding, we can begin to see that you can't find coming into being, also known as arising as an event in actual experience because there is nothing coming into being.
1: It's stream, it's flow. And everything is interdependent. So there is our experience, that's undeniable. And our experience for us, as we
0: study it in this fashion, become intimate with it, we experience it as just suchness appearing at this time,
1: in this moment. So we
0: clearly see more than the coming and the going. And that something more is the persistence.
1: that which is coming and going.
0: Even though our direct experience is revealing only flux and change. The practice of Zazen leads us to that understanding fairly quickly. study ourselves that intimately, that directly reveals that it's just constant change. And that we don't know
1: when we sit and practice shikantaza, what's going to arise. We experience suchness. Things
0: coming together, and this arises at this moment. But through the practice of Zazen, we're we're meeting it, we're
1: there, we're present.
0: So, this realization that we imagine things coming into existence, enduring for a while, and then passing out of existence. This is the way we conceive of arising and passing away.
1: But it's the persistence, it's the fiction. But
0: we need it in order to be able to structure our lives. We need the persistence
1: to guide us. So we create it. But it's just our creation as a skillful means. That's all. And then we get the
0: wake up calls throughout that remind us the way thing our our stream flows along that it is just constantly subject to change. But we're kind of lulled into this sense of persistence because to our eyes, things generally are, are kind of dependable until they're not. And then all of a sudden, oh, wake up call.
1: And we just can't fathom, how could this be? That's the nature of things.
0: But we generally don't see it that way. We don't respond to it that way.
1: So this uh, this practice
0: of cessation. They're basically two different approaches that one can take with this. I think these approaches will be familiar to all of us in terms of Buddhist practice. One way is to stop feeding the flame of desire and let that flame just diminish and go out. The objects, kind of the object focused
1: practice. And then the other is to forget
0: the self as Dogen calls it, the subjective side we could call it. So we can practice that way or we can practice with the object that we're chasing after, attaching to. Remembering that's the, the second noble truth. That's the this source, the root of our dukkha is our attachment to things, our clinging and grasping.
1: So we can go at that, or we can just go at the self.
0: And Steve Hagen talking about our, our senses and our desires and how they uh, they overload us. They have this tendency, which kind of then creates a sense of numbness when we become overloaded, but we're still on that path and driven to continue with it. And this is what we generally term addiction to whatever it is, (laughs) but it's being on that path of of, uh, uh, being driven by our senses, chasing after objects, fulfilling desires. And there is no Fulfillment from it. So
1: we keep going for more, more, more on the same path.
0: And this is a tendency that it's all too easy to fall into. So we take an approach with our desires, our actions to to bring about some particular end that we wish to attain by exerting control so we can control our destiny. We can make things happen. But these efforts
1: all too often fail, and we suffer because we can't control the basic truth of interdependence. And that no matter how
0: much we feel we've aligned things to be able to attain what we're attempting to, it's fairly easy for something to get in the way of that. And When it does, we suffer because we've set ourselves up to think, well, I'm, I'm
1: in control.
0: So John and I were talking about Thursday night's NBA playoff game. The Warriors, I'm sure, went into the game thinking they were in a pretty good position that night. (laughs) A a healthy team. They were playing on their own home court. They've been playing pretty darn well.
1: won the conference final in five games, took the Celtics seven. They lost, they were wondering what the heck happened. (laughs) And that's something we can relate to. I think we're pretty well positioned. But that interdependence, we're not in control.
0: And we talk about liberation and then to understand that fact that we're not in control
1: is liberating. But we still practice wholeheartedly.
0: It's just, we give up that sense of being in control. So it doesn't mean we become a, a society of just total slackers. <laughs> hey, out of my hands. That's to to mistake this teaching as well. Actually, from this understanding of interdependence, rather than saying, well, it's out of my hands, there's this sense of great responsibility that what I do has this broad impact. So I can have that understanding, which, which then leads, to wholehearted action. But at the same time, to have the realization as well, that even though it's important that I bring my wholehearted effort to it, I'm not in control and that's okay. I'm just gonna wholeheartedly apply myself here because that's the way I, I, With this understanding, that's what I need to do.
1: It's for all beings.
0: But it's not with this megalomania (laughs) that, that, oh, I can do, I can take care of the whole thing. Because we can't.
1: And that's, Extremely important to understand.
0: So, um, so we could come, come near the end of of uh, Steve Hagan's discussion on this matter. He, he relates uh, our uh, understanding, the true nature of self, of no self, to, uh, to the uh, uh, serpent rope mis- mistake. He, the, uh, and this is a teaching uh, uh, directly from the Buddha. Uh, just as a man shudders with horror when he steps upon a serpent, but laughs when he looks down and sees that it's only a rope. So the Buddha says, I discovered one day that what I was calling I cannot be found. And all fear and anxiety
1: vanished with my mistake. That's,
0: That's a powerful summation of this practice and the practice of the heart sutra, the second turning of the wheel of
1: Dharma. To see
0: that what we thought was a snake is actually a rope. To see that what I was been calling I
1: is a fantasy. It's not real. There's no such thing. It's just a stream. A very complex stream.
0: In a very complex environment, intersecting with myriad streams. So Dharma, the teachings, are pointing the way for each of us to wake up from this basic mistake that we keep making,
1: falling back into. And
0: when we awaken, just as in the analogy of the the snake and the rope, when we awaken, our fears and anxieties will naturally vanish. All right. So let's uh, go on then, and and uh, uh, take take a little bit of time to look at uh, at Tara's uh Vaden
1: view of the third noble truth. He and
0: he uh, he talks about the importance of the the experience, or, as we we were talking about Thursday, it's practice. It's actual doing. And the, through the doing, we have the experience, a direct experience. And he relates it to something uh, uh, like the taste of sugar, which cannot be made known to one who has no previous experience of it. It's not going to be very helpful to advise such a person to read a book on the chemistry of sugar. Far better to give them Lump of sugar, say here, experience it. And then no more theorizing about it as needed. This is Dharma, ultimately ineffable, incommunicable, just like the taste of sugar or any of the experiences that we have in such a direct fashion. Our explanations are just moving us further away
1: from the reality. And that's an important understanding to have and to become clear about. The ineffability, and incommunicability.
0: So the role of no in the Heart Sutra is addressing that. When, When it tells us no eyes, ears,
1: nose, tongue. But that's just theorizing and designating entities. But
0: what's really arising right here and now? That's where reality is going to be found.
1: We can theorize about it and that's okay. But don't mistake that for The truth. Our conceptions of things are part of our samsaric realm. where things arise and cease, even
0: though there are no things. Where we get caught up by notions of existence and non-existence of right and wrong. Nirvana, cessation, the third noble truth, is beyond. It's gone beyond. Gone completely beyond parasamgata, beyond positive and negative, beyond existence and non-existence, and not related to anything that is conditional. And that, of course, harkens back to the fox koan. Is the awakened person subject to causality, to karma. As an awakened person,
1: no. It's not related to anything conditioned. It
0: doesn't mean that the conditioned realm doesn't exist. It just means that our awakening isn't contingent upon that. Our awakening can happen regardless. It's not related to anything conditioned. It happens. It emerges. The lotus uh, blossoming out of muddy water. Our awakening emerges out of the world of conditioning. We don't need a special set of conditions that will then
1: make that come about. So it's in this sense that we're going beyond, beyond the world that we're very accustomed to to dealing with even though that world is still here, but our relationship to it changes dramatically.
0: We become liberated from it while still being able to function in it, that that can happen. (laughs) That being liberated from it doesn't mean we just uh, Go off into seclusion,
1: ignore it, not necessary.
0: So as the Theravadans view our existence, firmly rooted in the three poisons of greed, hatred, delusion, it's these three poisons that turn the wheel of life and death and bring about repeated existence, the things arising and ceasing. And causing our dukkha, because we keep chasing after, clinging, grasping, and it just keeps turning and turning. And the the motor at the heart of that wheel is greed, hatred, delusion. So without abandoning these, Tara says, one is not free from birth and death. And he also says the buddha used truth with the capital t as a substitute for nirvana to see reality as it really is to go beyond not beyond our customary way of interpreting things in the Buddha's words from from the sutras, reality monk is a name for nirvana. In reality, they are released, destroying, craving for becoming. So that which is false in this dichotomy is that which is unreality. That which is fabricated, but not seen as as such. That which is really a rope,
1: but we don't see it as that. We see it as reality. That's the power of our conceptual thinking.
0: So now we have this third noble truth is nirvana, which is reality. This is the Buddhist practice of of realizing, and the term realization is to
1: understand what is real, really real.
0: And, of course, in this absence of a sense of self, water who attains this nirvana? It's kind of a baffling question. <laughs> so we keep coming back. we 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 have to, as we describe it, we have to use our words that are built upon our Ways of of uh, understanding of fabricating things, but yet we have to go beyond. So, water who attains nirvana? A few different ways that have been used to uh, to try to account for that. Dogen, for instance, would say, "Well, it's all beings." because there, there is no self, then it's, we all go together. And that's what his teaching in that regard is trying to do for us.
1: is to go beyond the sense of me attaining, awakening, understanding. Because then we're not, we haven't. So we have to go beyond self. to forget the self, as Dogen put it, to see that there is no I, to be awakened. There's no
0: doer of a deed or thinker of a thought. No person doing sheik and taza, there's just sheik and taza. There's just suchness this coming together of the myriad things, all things to create this moment.
1: And that's... uh
0: pretty much what I think I wanted to, to get across here this morning. So I'm gonna bow out and plug in the speaker
1: And I, I do have to So what we
0: looked at Thursday. With uh, the mantra, the heart sutra, gate, Gata," going beyond. That is the third noble truth. To see the emptiness of the third noble truth <laughs> is to, to actually realize the third noble truth. Hmm. And then that uh, sets the stage for the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path, so that we can live our lives
1: in, in that fashion, to be liberated. Now that you have such an understanding, how will you go forward?
0: So because of the understanding, we, we follow the Eightfold Path, and by following the Eightfold Path, it facilitates the continuing understanding, and it's interdependent,
1: it's just like all the teachings are. Nothing stands on its own, there is no single teaching, there are the myriad teachings, but they're one teaching. have to manifest as all these individual teachings. It's the richness of our existence.
2: Uh, Dean. Yeah, I, I just had a question about um dozen
1: so so if thoughts are rising.
2: Um I you know I understand we 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 just we let them arise and um, you know, focus on our breathing, and they'll pass. And new thoughts will arise. I don't know. I I was on.
0: Let's let's be with that thought, and let's look at what is a what is the thought? What is a thought? Look, just do a. a you know, this is all about stopping, because we want to keep. Uh, rushing ahead and thoughts, that's how they operate. But just really look at whatever the thought is, rather than to have it connecting, just stay with that thought and and look at it. And what is is a thought?
2: What is it? A mental formation? Or a...
0: (laughs) That's another thought. <laughs> I mean, really, really <laughs> just be with that thought and look at it as, as what it is. And not not looking to, to reconceptualize it, maybe, the laundry list of things we can do, but just really be with it and and get a sense because remember, whatever it is, it's it's ineffable, it's incommunicable because we wanna fully define it. But so going into it, recognizing this is beyond description, but but still, what is it? What's going on here? That's to to really practice uh, shikantaza and to be present with what's arising, which are thoughts, That's really kind of important to be able to do and to see, to be present then with their tendency to connect from one thought to another to another, to be present and to really pay close attention. And uh, uh, as part of that paying attention is to then see our tendency to start uh, associating it with this, that and the other thing. And that's really important for us to do because we see how our mind works then. It it wants to, it's part of this drive to control things. So we want to, to kind of like uh, painting uh, a a picture, we want to keep drawing it out, drawing it out. But just to be with the thought. And what is the thought? Be with a single thought. If there is such a thing, of course we have to recognize there is, there's no thing. So there is no thought. So in that sense, you know, Epstein's thoughts without a thinker, well, there are no thoughts. <laughs> and he would he would say, absolutely, there are none. <laughs> It's just our way of trying to find something we can pin down, but the thoughts are literally—it's like the Diamond
2: Sutra describes them as these bubbles that immediately pop. Is that why I could never tell you what I was thinking about during zazen? Because they're just so, like, yeah, you know, that if, uh, what the word is, but you know, they just come and go and maybe I misunderstood. Um, I was listening to an, another Zen center, um, a couple of weeks ago on YouTube and, uh, the teacher, the Dharma teacher mentioned something about, um, if you're if you're if your mind is full of chatter and thoughts during during your sitting you're really you're not practicing true zazen mm-hmm. and so I I I, cl- I clinged on or cling clang cling, <laughs> I clinged on to that yeah. thought of what he of what he said And I I'm, oh my god I'm not practicing true zazen because <laughs> I often have a lot of these thoughts popping up in my head. I, but maybe he was trying to explain it. To what, like what you just described, makes sense to me. I'm like, okay, I think there are thoughts, but they're really just not substantial. Like,
0: right. Well, the like act, bub- of
2: thinking, like bubbles.
0: Yeah, the act of thinking is when we just let our thoughts kind of turn them, we turn them loose and they do their thing. That's the chatter. That means that the thoughts are just working working away in their accustomed fashion. But when we can bring our focus to the thought and look at it just as the thought and see its emptiness, that it, there, there isn't a thought to the extent we can do this actually the activity starts to diminish it's 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 just a natural thing where it's not like we're trying to make it diminish but it will because what really feeds the thinking process is giving it a free reign and letting it go, that's what it wants to do. So it's kind of like the middle path. Uh, We we can't just tie it, Uh, then it's it's the tethered (laughs) colt or the trapped rat and then it's, it's, it's really getting agitated too. So, as Suzuki put it, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, it's just watching. We're not tying it down, but we're watching. And this deep watching right, of just sitting, and we're not trying to do anything, so we're not trying to, to, to still our mind, but we're just closely watching. That's all she can tell us anyways. is is to be aware, complete awareness. And then that's that's sufficient. And then we awaken because we generally don't pay attention. We are grabbing our categories, our mental formations (laughs) and and our perceptions and, and we, we, they're our uh, Lego set, as i uh, compared them to. And we start building our edifices. And, and if we can just stay with a, an individual thought, and as it morphs into another thought, not letting it go, but watching it. Watching it. And see what what is this that's happening? And part of that in, entails seeing its ineffability But yeah, I can use terms like it's a, a perception arising. But that you know, there's something. It's like the the sugar cube. <laughs> that's what what I'm suggesting is to be with our thoughts like. Uh, dropping the sugar cube on your tongue. What is this? What does this thought taste like?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's often like cayenne pepper.
0: Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
2: that is sugar.
0: <laughs> so that's when we really start to study the self. And actually in that, the depths of that study, that's where the self drops off. And then we allow the myriad things to come forth in a because we're just, we're letting things come forth, but we're paying attention. And that, that's the, the big differential, to pay attention, very close attention. Not, for, not with the intent of trying to control anything, but just to be present. To bear witness, you might say. <laughs> Bearing witness to what the heck's going on.
2: So, so if an annoyance arises because of all of these thoughts that are arising, just be with the annoyance also? And-
0: That's now comes front and center. That's a perfect thing
2: to really be able to, to,
0: to uh, stay with and to look deeply into that. Because I, I think you'll find that those types of things uh, you, can, you can spend some time with. And really reap some benefit from it in terms of deeper understanding. What is annoyance? Just like anger. That's a great thing to to actually be able to sit with and, and look at just that fashion. What are all the myriad aspects
2: of it? What is it to be annoyed? I mean, there's so many things to be annoyed at.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And that is uh, there's it's unlimited.
0: There's always <laughs> one more thing because you're annoyed at being annoyed. <laughs> it's annoyed at being annoyed. <laughs> Very un Buddhist like, <laughs> Terrible. Be. Yeah. <laughs> when am I going to stop being annoyed? <laughs> <laughs> but this is the, the beauty of, of Reb's teaching about meeting each thing that arises with complete relaxation if it's annoyance that's fine but meet it and really uh, look deeply at it Let's take that hard let say you know become friends with it welcome it and, and get to know it. Kind of put your arms around it. Not in a clinging way, but just in the sense that, you know, you really want to get to understand this. Annoyance. It's, you've been such such a part of my life, and I, don't, I feel like I don't really know you. So I want to take the time to get to know you. <laughs> Let's hang out for a while <laughs> together, son. And you've got my full attention.
2: Matt made a comment. Being annoyed is a choice. Get curious about what is making that choice. Yeah, yeah. Interesting because it's like, I often wanna, um, it's like one annoyance is like a hindrance Mm -hmm. that I want to uh, escape from, you know? It's like the natural tendency. Oh, I don't want to be annoyed. Stop thinking those thoughts that are making me annoyed. It's just, it's, yeah. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. I, it's, it's like a reminder to embrace the annoyance, which seems counterintuitive.
0: It is, exactly.
2: But it's, it's a like, dharma. Uh, it's a what? It's
0: a dharma gate those Dharma gates that are boundless, to be able to see those things that we generally want to turn away from, those can be the most valuable Dharma gates. Those are the ones you definitely want to go through.
1: And that's how they, they begin to, their power over begins to diminish. Yeah. It's kind of like uh,
0: uh, people that maybe we uh, uh, we find annoying, but if we actually were in a situation where we spend time and we're really attentive with them, the annoyance would diminish, maybe completely disappear. Very often, it's exactly what happens. So the same thing was what all this turmoil that's going on in our mind. Take that time to end with it. Yeah. So, so the clutter in the mind becomes a problem because there's so much going on. That's where the attentiveness allows us to kind of focus. Takes one piece to that clutter. Which is why, if annoyance arises, that's perfect. It's like it's stepping up and saying, "You know, uh, pay attention to me and do it." Yeah, really focus on that. But, but in that sense of wanting to really get to know what is it, and resist the temptation for the easy generalizations and ways of conceptualizing it, but really get. Get to know it intimately, closely. What are you really? Because when we do that with anything, it's going to lead us to the realization of its emptiness. And then it'll ultimately drift off, and the next thing comes So we get up sitting after sitting after sitting and we start to understand what I've been talking about. You know, the sense of of turning things into entities when it's just stream. And that's our, our practice of zazen, is to see this constant flow, to realize, to really get that. That. That's powerful. That's liberating. And then the annoyance of annoyance (laughs) at least starts to drop off. It's just part of the flow. It's okay. Uh, thank you for that. And you, you, for me, you tied that together with one of Mark's comments about not making that choice or, or something of that nature, that mm-hmm. uh, being annoyed was a choice. Yeah. I'm thinking the flow of things. That's uh, this causation, this dependent arising. My life has been one long string of dependent arising. Maybe that's the flow you were referring to. Yeah, and so when we get up to that point, when we really have that choice. You really have the ability to do other than what you would do. Right, I right. Mean, it's just is. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you look at it as a choice, that's another thought. That's just a thought. <laughs> exactly. So this sense of uh, of of controlling things. That's. That's why to just be mindful, so back to Sadi Patana, to be mindful, and then the role of trust, faith, and the practice is to place our faith there. That if I'm doing this mindfully, attentively, that's, that's sufficient. I trust yeah. that. I have faith in that. And so be it. Uh, yeah, and that's to be liberated. Otherwise, you know, if we we carry around uh, just picking and choosing, and and, uh, and and the navigating is, you know, now our rational mind is is supposedly in control, and there's not much liberation there at all. I mean, we're just constantly uh, worried about making the right choice. So to to go beyond that dilemma is to just be present in this situation, bring our caring nature, which is there, and and being fully attentive to respond. And that's, that's enough. Is it always gonna be? Uh, just the perfect Hollywood-type outcome? No. But it wouldn't be if we were, you know, the calculating folks that were (laughs) saying you had it all worked out either. If that was the solution, then we should turn it all over to the computers because they can do that way better than we can. So just turn it all over to them. If that's the solution, we're pretty well there already. We'll be able to do that. We, then we can go off and not have to worry about it then. But that's that's not. Hopefully, that's not our path. It could be. <laughs> but I don't think that bodes well for, for us, frankly. There's a real concern that, even folks like Stephen Hawking had expressed put it, but it's probably a bigger existential threat to us than even global warming. <laughs> it's artificial intelligence. The problem with artificial intelligence is it all starts, starts with thoughts from someone, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Pill, then uh, the machines can begin to take that on for themselves. <laughs> right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> and they don't much care what we're thinking about anymore. <laughs> that lowly spacing would be like us uh, thinking about what chimpanzees are thinking that same relationship like just we become the chimps. So the question is can artificial intelligence become smarter than the intelligence which invented it? Oh absolutely. I think I think that will happen. the, the, the challenge is to, to be able to do it on Such a a wide global basis for particular tasks, like playing chess. Obviously, that's already demonstrated. Or in any particular field, you can program it. It's the connectedness. It's it's the the remaining challenge, Hmm. and that's that's interesting because. it kind of points to this uh, uh, sense of, of of complete interdependence that, that Buddhism, uh, the Dharma, is is uh, strongly rooted in. And for us, you know, that our our physical body is part of that, plays a huge role in that, as well as all all. Of the aspects of our environment. So we we can't, the reason why we're these holistic beings is so complicated. It is indescribable, but we are be getting a clear picture that it's dependent upon all of these various relationships. And it's like we have this intuitive sense of it. And as a result, I think this is what Create, makes us these spiritual beings is because we, the way we relate to our environment and to ourselves, and its vastness. And we can't diagram it, but we
1: we have the sense. It remains kind of
0: mysterious, but we kind of get a taste. And you know, could artificial intelligence, what's that gonna, how would that duplicate that? Because is this organic nature, that does artificial intelligence at some point has to become
1: organic, I don't know. Interesting think on that. Right I'm not sure I buy that. There's a sense I have our own limitations. Can we create something that globally that doesn't have our own limitations as a part of what we create? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So knowledge is not disconnected from the rules of knowing. Correct. Mm-hmm. So in that disconnection becomes strong. I was thinking about my family while you were talking with me. Um, why can't they go beyond? They have this bush wall that is there
2: and they won't think
0: past it on purpose. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a choice. True that they're making, yeah. um, to not allow themselves in, in I, I just got a sense when you were talking that it's because of the emotion behind it It's been built in to their system, which AI does not have. To allow them to go beyond their ways of knowing in the first place, the freedom to just keep playing with You know, at lightning speeds, every kind of thought bubble that surfaces until one actually pops into the next one. Uh, You know, open up so many false doors before one's a good door and just keep on doing that artificial intelligence speed and allow yourself to go beyond the algorithms that created you. I understand that part of it. The question that is still in my mind is. Uh, 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 Is there something in the way even our design of artificial intelligence, are we going to build something in based on who we are and how we can see that that the three robotic worlds? Well, that isn't going to let it surpass a certain point. And this is still a very vague thought in my own head, so I can't verbalize it very well. But I know that most everything else we do, we build limitations into because of our own limitations. And so I wonder, does the same thing happen with artificial intelligence, even though we seem to think, and I understand what you're saying, you know. you're going to do all these things at lightning speed, but is there is there a piece that's in that?
2: And, and I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. and I don't even have the thought very well worked out. So
0: you just like, answered one of my other questions, though, about uh, what's built in. And, and that's why my family doesn't go beyond. Mm-hmm. We did build in limitations of oh, yeah. their thinking <laughs> by the way they were raised, mm-hmm. and what allowed the few of us to say, I'm just going to open up those doors and look beyond it, yeah. and, and the rest the masses
1: will not do that and make us wrong. Yeah.
0: I, I, I apologize for giving us the No, No. no. I, I, I
2: think we were down that signing cool. a long way. Before. <laughs> 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 yeah. No, I
0: mean, I, I mean, part of what we're trying to figure out is how we think,
1: right? So, I mean,
0: as, as we have said before, you know, or um, I'm sorry, I'm pulling it from someone else, but if we want to know how we learn and how we think, study artificial intelligence, and that was from um. John Medina, uh, uh, he, he's a, um, uh, a developmental neuroscientist mm-hmm. that I used to listen to until he got so busy. Uh, you know, <laughs> He quit doing that, uh, quit getting the parts of it. Very um,
1: powerful,
0: one of those geniuses that as long as you followed everything you said. You, mm-hmm. you didn't want to drop your pencil and it <laughs> yeah.
1: so the it okay. So the
0: fourth noble truth sort of has to come first in some ways to do the take the right view and do the right thinking. So we can start getting our arms around the first, second, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could uh, make a case for starting with any of them because <laughs> they're all, they really are all in you know, pretty tiny. Which is what you said in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. But to take any one on its own, it just won't hold up. And that's true for each of the. Uh, and this also kind of uh, set, helps set the stage for studying the Eightfold Path. So each part of the Eightfold Path is interdependent with the other seven. Which is especially topical when it comes to mindfulness, which has kind of been pulled out of, the, of that fourth, fourth Noble Truth. And it's been made its own path and, and, uh, and marketed pretty effectively as such. But it's not satipatthana practice then, because it's, it's been removed from the other seven parts of the past. And it has to be in relationship to those as, as the fourth noble truth. Otherwise, you just uh, um, mm-hmm. c- completely, uh, it's something different. It's a different practice. Because you could practice mindfully uh, things that would uh, hardly be in accord with, uh, with right action, right thought, right, right intention. You could be off, off uh, the range for all, all the other aspects of the past, but practicing mindfully. And be very good at what, what you're doing. <laughs> it could help you. You great assassin. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it works for all the collections of, of uh, practices and dharmas in Buddhism. And then you can't just lift them out and say, well, that's, that's the one I want. I mean, they're all interconnected. And if they lose that aspect, then you've kind of changed it. So yeah. as soon as you, you uh, look at the truth of suffering, you first know the first noble truth, then everything else is part of it. So it's really just, it's another way of saying there's just one truth. <laughs> it's all one, but we can come at it from so many different directions. But are we really interested in the truth, or are we? Do we have a different interest, like, like getting as much money out of this as we can, or whatever that interest might be? That that uh, has a huge bearing on, uh, on what direction that goes in. So, as Dharma practitioners, you know, we are. Uh, cognizant of the three poisons, and part of our practice is working with that rather than having that be our driving force. I and mean, that's the, the rich thing for me about Buddha Dharma is it's uh, connectivity with all things. So that I find the, some of the richest Dharma gates are, are outside of Buddhism. And those are the ones that really kind of get me, <laughs> get me super enthused because it's a way of seeing. It's it's a boundless reach. It's not just within this box we build, that we call Buddhism. But it really does go beyond. If it didn't, there'd be no real reason for doing it. Plus, I I create that box in my own fashion, uh, just because I like that. I like to hang out there. In fact, I was just reading about uh, uh, a Taoist teaching about the uh, uh, making a comparison between the frog in the well and the sea turtle, which is a good metaphor for to use in connection with uh, teachings of emptiness. You know, the frog in the well, of course, has got this confined view and world, and the sea turtle is out in the vast ocean of of emptiness, and very different ways of seeing things. So of course, from the Taoist Zen point of view, we're the sea turtles. And other uh, views are are those that are in, in the well, that have those very narrow borders, and that's where they operate. So that's kind of what liberation is about is is being in that sea with the wide open frontiers.
1: And to be very comfortable.
0: Kind of quizzical about those beings in the well, (laughs) that they don't get out of the well. (laughs) And that's what you were talking (laughs) about (laughs) me. What what do you stay in
1: there?
0: <laughs> Such a big ocean out. Here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it, it's all right here on the well. <laughs> right, <I mean> exactly. <laughs> 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 Just got a larger screen TV. <laughs> It's big enough for me now. <laughs> yeah, better Wi-Fi. <laughs>
1: yeah, all these things. Yeah. Enhance the well. <laughs> Right. Go ahead.
0: Head out into the ocean.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to
1: become it.